Hello and welcome to my podcast. Today I'm very excited to be talking to Professor Lucy Easthope. She is the country's leading authority on recovering from disaster. For over two decades, she's challenged people to think differently about what comes next after tragic events. She's a passionate and thought-provoking voice in an area that very few people know about emergency planning. However, in the time of the COVID-19 pandemic, her work has become decidedly more mainstream. I should say right here and now, I interviewed her myself for my book, A State of Fear, alongside a few articles I wrote in 2021. She's advised both the Prime Minister's office and many other government departments and charities during the pandemic. And yet, in the midst of all of this, she found time to reflect upon a life in disaster for her new book. Lucy, I reviewed your book, When the Dust Settles, Stories of Love, Loss and Hope from an Expert in Disaster for The Critic magazine. I know you've read The Critic, so you know I absolutely loved it. Can you just foreground this and tell me a little bit more about what made you write it? Oh, that's a great question. And thank you very much for having me on. I really wanted to get down on paper, actually long before the pandemic, um, the things that we were forgetting, you know, things that I'd seen. I've, I've been working in, in uh, planning for disaster and then responding to disaster for 22 years. And I think people always assume that what you see traumatizes you or affects you in, in terrible ways. But actually, often it's been a source of great hope for me. But what was really starting to worry me was how these events were being processed and thought about. So I, I wanted to get some stuff down on paper and get it out there. And I was very, very lucky to get a, a contract and, and be able to do that. So did the idea come to you during COVID then? It was during the, the government's management of the COVID-19 pandemic that spurred you on to write this book? No, I'd always been quite, it was earlier, I'd always been quite insecure about writing to, to, to I have a, a PhD in medicine, but to draft the thesis was incredibly painful because I, I really struggle to turn, uh, I think, quite, quite verbose, excitable uh, thoughts that I say out loud into writing. So I just, I just assumed it would be too sort of torturous to write a book. Uh, my thesis was turned into a book, The Recovery Myth, but it was, it was for an academic audience. I was like, I haven't got this in me. And then I started to write some opinion pieces in 2017. Actually, the anniversary of those first pieces is next week because I wrote about the Manchester bombings. And I wrote about how desperately hard it was to keep planning, it, you know, with, with imagining scenarios like the Manchester Arena attack and then seeing them come to fruition and, and, and seeing everything down to the last details that you had worried about come real. And in this case, obviously involving children, children having fun. And so I, I wrote a really impassioned piece and to my surprise, uh, it was run and there was a huge reaction to it. But the biggest reaction all, of all was, hey, tell us what emergency planning is. So in fact, those first couple of chapters have been written before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, it's a different book because of the pandemic, because I think people, in a way, some of my work was done for me. You know, people were ready to hear about what disaster planning is and what we do. No, your work wasn't done for you. I'm not going to let you I'm not going to let you detract <laughs> from your own efforts here. And in fact, I think that's so interesting. I think I think lots of us have a sort of an imposter syndrome. We think we can't do it. We're not good enough. Personally, you know, that that stage at the beginning of the book, you have all this excitement and you know what you want to get out, but you can feel really daunted. You know, can I do it? Is my voice the right one? For what it's worth, I think that you really find your voice when you do get personal, when you let the passion come through. Because I have read your other book, Recovery Myth, 
See, I can't yes. remember the name of it. Now it's good. It is good. <laughs> but it wasn't for me the same engaging read yeah. as when the dust yeah. settles, which has all these fascinating vignettes about disaster recovery. I was picturing you like uh, some kind of Fargo-esque character, you know, <laughs> smuggling your way behind disaster <laughs> chevrons. And I know you were meant to be there, but the way you describe it is as though you're smuggling your way behind the chevrons. You know, your imposter syndrome yeah. is clearly yeah. not just related to your writing, but also to the way you work. So for me, it was very vivid. It was brought to life so well that I was picturing you starring in a film of your life so I I thought it was tremendous I loved it and I think you should let out more of your impassioned voice you're actually um god this is turning into such a blowing smoke interview we're gonna we're gonna I'm gonna give you a hard time in a minute but when when you (laughs) when you actually um allow your passion to come through I think it all becomes very relatable and of course people want to know what emergency planning is because we don't know it's this little career that's sort of tucked away almost in the broom closets of hospitals and government departments and yet it is fundamental because in these times of emergency we all we all want to know who's got it like who's got it in hand and it's people like you yeah yeah absolutely but the fact that we don't know about you and the fact that the UK government didn't follow formal pandemic plans also says something else about your job. It's almost like it continues through oral tradition. You know, where, what happens to the plans? Where did they go, Lucy? Why didn't the UK follow official pandemic plans? Why did we tear up the rule book this time? I um I think you're I think you're onto so many things there. I I remember writing a synopsis for the book that that tried to explain you, you've absolutely captured two words I would use myself the oral tradition of emergency planning the idea of the stories and the narratives mm. and I think you know people have rushed for the first two years and certainly you and I talked about it in relation to your book and the interviews you know show me the pdfs show me show me the spreadsheet show me the plans mm. and I would go back to things like exercises that we'd run for for, for pandemic and remember the as you say the oral briefing that it didn't actually matter whether it was flu or corona you would need to do whatever you could to keep a safe space for children open you know there were some scenarios there were some high consequence infectious diseases where we you know there were there were really terrifying consequences but we would do everything we could to keep a safe place for children open but then actually when I look back through my own archive there is an influenza bias in the plans and we know that I think particularly leaders and political leaders if they think the plan isn't for them (laughs) they'll They'll sort of go, oh, the plan's rubbish. It mentions influenza. And, and most of us are like, it doesn't matter. Just turn over page two, go straight to page four. You know, don't worry about it. Just take the essence was correct. So I think one of the things we hadn't always done was, was you're absolutely right. We told our stories around the, the campfire that this needed to be done in a certain way. But then that's also letting the government off the hook. I think mm. when, when uh, the sort of first word came out of Wuhan, they were very drawn to sparkly ideas they were very drawn to the idea that you know certain advisors would get them through they were very drawn to the world health organization i for example don't always have a problem with the uk having what may appear on paper to be an aberrant approach i wanted us to to challenge the world health organization about whether the approach was right i wanted us to have a a, a, a nation's view on our measures i was concerned of about a domino effect 
Um, I've said before, you know, we are very different sometimes in our approach to disaster to other countries, partly because we've learned differently. We have a different legal aftermath. We have a history of, of brave dissent from our public. Um, I wasn't, you know, as I say in the book, I'm not always looking for compliance. I want to hear the voices that are challenging. So I think the, the, the default, the strange default was that there weren't plans and there weren't planners. And they clung to that for some months. But what they, what they did allow was a sort of vacuum at local level, which meant that we activated the plans we'd always worked to, which is why your bins are still being collected. And also what happened in the corporate and private sector was they never really, you know, they'd been planning for a pandemic as well. You know, the Sainsbury's, the, the Boots, the chemists, they have what are called business continuity plans. It didn't actually matter to them whether it was a corona or an influenza. They too had learned to be ready for this sort of event and in many ways the private sector outstripped us and we got in some ways a much better response than we dared hope for you know in terms of infrastructure keeping going you could still pick up a meal deal on the way home mm. um but i you know I, I i go there with people like you you know the pain that i carry it, it absolutely devastates me that i didn't get to do some of the things that i had just assumed would be sacred and they were proper end of life access to people um better conversations with the public about what this was and most importantly the protection of children and young people in any of our disaster plans so that their mm. needs were prioritized and mm. yeah. That, I bear that. I, I hold that very, very closely to my soul. Yes, of course, there's another thing as well, though, which is, uh, and this is a subject you know is close to my heart, that the use of fear um, is 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 not is not has not previously been recommended to encourage public compliance in a situation like that, and that's that's of course another thing that went wrong as well. You know, you talked about the uh, willingness of the government to listen to certain sorts of advisors. You mentioned the the graphs, you know, the the, the models. I think you said the models. I feel as though there was um, a tendency to lean upon certain sorts of experts who would quantify everything and. That, that could be using modelling, but they wanted numbers, didn't they? They didn't want stories. Is there, a, was there a sense, I don't, was there a sense that you were less reliable as a, yeah. as a woman yeah. with an oral tradition of stories <laughs> and experience rather than numbers on a spreadsheet? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's not imposter syndrome. I totally believe in myself. It's just that the rest of the room are like, what's she doing here? And it was difficult in the book because I wanted to convey you know, I, I'm, I'm really very comfortable that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable at what I, I do and I, and I bring something to the party. But there is there is something about when you're, you know, I wanted to convey that struggle to be heard in the room. And I've heard that at the highest level. Um, and what you often see, I think, particularly with women, is that they try and ape the male behaviour in the room. There's an awful lot of in those spaces and where scientific advice is given. There's a lot of sense of collective responsibility. So, you know, you behave and ultimately, if you don't agree, you sort of get kind of chewed down to agreeing by the end of it. It's not a great environment scientific advice in emergencies to bring stories and it's also not a great uh, place to bring as you say qualitative data and what we had from a long tradition in disaster research was we knew that for example we would see increased domestic violence uh, increased pediatric uh, you know violence to children we knew we'd see increased alcoholism but these were all stories of afterwards and the other thing that we had 
a real problem was we'd say, well, look, you know, this is the data that says across 10 big disasters in, in, in global history, we see an increase of this amount of domestic violence. And they would say, well, that's not a COVID-19 pandemic. And we would push back and go, yeah, but in disaster, you do something called isomorphic learning. You don't, you're not obsessed with what's causing the event. You're interested in um, the consequences. So it was AIDS and also Ebola in 2014 that had, had really schooled us on being very careful about fear messaging. Mm. So we, you know, we sort of take an AIDS case study in and people would say, oh, but this isn't AIDS, it's spread differently. Like, that's not, that's not the point. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of reflection over the years that I've been giving advice on how it's given, how the advice is given, what your evidence base is. Bluntly, and I know you know this from the sort of expertise that you interviewed for the for the book. What was strangely comforting this time is I was very much not alone. I, you know, there's a whole therapeutic club of us who struggled to get advice in. Um, so I knew. Oh, I don't. I don't know if that's worse or better, really. So basically, there's a, a host of experts who were ignored, not just you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think on a personal, I mean, it's terrible. It's terrible when it's said like that. But on a personal level, you knew that this was the machine it wasn't it wasn't an individual failing and whereas with something yeah. like some of the earlier events that I've been involved in I you really took it personally if you couldn't get traction with those mm. with those narratives and you had to watch it unfold you know very different in a very difficult way and talking of unfolding I mean I'm personally finding this quite a difficult stage of the pandemic because while the pandemic is over, we're now left with those consequences that you rightly say aren't necessarily COVID-19. They're what happens in the aftermath. At the moment, there are articles about toddlers whose speech is delayed, for instance. And it does feel as though when masks and some of the other you know, lockdowns and other restrictions were being justified, there was a great attempt to minimise what the consequences would be. And yet, now we're really understanding it. Whereas if advice such as yours had been taken on board earlier, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be here now, would we, Lucy? I, I mean, it's always very difficult because one of my areas of advisory work was the afterwards. And, you know, you know, I will and, and never have downplayed the virus. And I, I'm very aware that a pandemic comes with consequences. What I, what, what I, um, well, you know, again, it, I carry it as a, a wound, if you will, is to say to civil servants, you know, that summer term of 2020 is so crucial to the development of, of two-year-olds and three-year-olds, three-year-olds and four-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, and being told, really, we can't see it's going to make much difference. And just not being able to lobby that nurseries needed to stay open in some form and just not being able to be heard I think by 2021, you know, I've said to you before, it was it was easier to be heard. But be, the only reason it got easier was because we started to have the proof of the harm and we, we had to do the harm to be right. So I think, you know, if you ask me 50 things that I I didn't predict them, I'm not sat there with tea leaves. These were things that the disaster research told us would be likely harms. They were reasons why we had scoped pandemic plans that would keep a precautionary approach that there was, a, there was both the harms of the virus, but also harms of the consequences. This wasn't something I was picking out of a crystal ball. So I think to see them come to reality 
is a very particular type of pain, you know, and I know, for example, there's other educational psychologists that that have shared that pain about the, the particular harm we're seeing to a particular age group, which is they're now basically hitting reception in year one with the uh, with the fundamental skills of 18 months to 24 month old children. And the other thing that happens with that, you're not just damaging the child, you're damaging the family around the child. So the, the couple or the, the people caring are strained. We saw an increase in paediatric head trauma. We see an increase in people just completely losing it at home. They aren't being told that it's not their fault. So families are breaking down. And I, I think there was so much more we could have done to prevent that. And you, you know, you know, I carry a particular anger about the January and February cabinet office briefing meetings, what are called the Cobras, because really the virus should have been perhaps items one to three on the agenda. And then items four to 18 should have been everything else that we needed to prevent. And it was a reason to try and keep as much open as possible. Mm. Maybe functioning in a different way, but open. One more question about COVID before we move on, because the book obviously covers lots of other uh, disasters, lots of other ground. Um, But you talked about the machine before, the machine of government. Do you have any um, expectation or hope that the machine might change um, in response to the aftermath to COVID-19 and change its approach in the next disaster? Well, we're in a very perilous moment because the danger is, and I think I'm already seeing bits of this, the machine will show change by throwing technical kit. You know, we've got various surveillance centres being open and we'll promise the public that we're brilliant at this and brilliant at that. And one thing I would say is I do think, you know, some of the aspects of our science surveillance has been very incredible. You know, the, as the book says, the dust will settle and we'll see what we, we were able to achieve. But there's a danger at this point that the way the public will be reassured is with what we call in disaster planning, the shiny stuff. So it's when you've, you know, you've killed tens of people in a railway incident, you buy new radios to show that you've learned the big lessons. So what the disaster research shows is that you'll fix the 20 percent of technical failings, but never address the 80 percent of human and social failings that the disaster highlighted. Mm-hmm. Um, do I think we'll go into the next one uh, more unified on, on the on the non-virus harms? I don't know. I really, really worry about that. Um, I did get listened to as time get, goes on. And also what's very painful for somebody like me is when people say we are listening to you, but the optics, you know, the political machine is that we have to look to not be listening. And, you know, we, you know, and that, that's the essence of something like Partygate. By the May, um, people did feel very differently about their own personal risk in some quarters of society, um, but they just did not know how to row back on the fear that they created in the first three months of the virus. Um, I want some big questions asked and, and, you know, maybe just by agitating, I'll get some of them asked, but we're in a very perilous point. Mm, I'd agree with that. Actually. I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of jumping the shark about the world health organization amendments, uh, yeah. to the, to the treaty or the accord, uh, whatever it's going to be. Uh, however, one thing that's quite concerning is that now lockdowns are seen as a normative response within that treaty. So it feels as though no lessons have been learned at all at this stage about the uh, empirical evidence in favour and um, the the qualitative harms that they cause. So I'm not sure that the machine is quite ready to 
yeah, acknowledge and- those harms while the enactors of the policy are still there. Well, the, the, the disaster literature is very helpful on this and the, and the sort of disaster psychology literature is very helpful on this. You know, when you've seen as many disaster aftermaths as I have, there will be commanders who can have been roundly humiliated at multiple inquiry and criminal cases and they will go to their grave believing that their response was right. And you, you cannot ask the, the, the scientists and the experts who mandated something now to change. It's a bit like being in a really toxic relationship. Mm. And, you know, the relate counsellor could show that both of you've got some useful viewpoints and there's a middle ground you need to find. Um, both. And, and, and that's why I also urge compassion, you know, from our side of the fence in a way that I, I understand completely why people were afraid. I, I also, you know, I will tweet two opposing articles in the same 10 minutes and be very comfortable with that. I constantly critically reflect on my own position. And in order to do that, you have to adopt a very non-hubristic position. Um, And there was a very punchy kind of masculine air to a lot of the national global health advice that has really struggled to say, I'm sorry, I I, I didn't see that from that perspective. I I can't see the critical reflection that is required at this point to get to a point where we look again at lockdowns it will be it will be like something like a a truth and reconciliation after a conflict it's almost impossible Mm, yes that makes sense um lucy there was some there were a couple of stories in the book that really stood out for me well obviously i loved the whole book but the stories i want to talk about are indicative of a a level of well-meaning ineptitude within the British government <laughs> that I found oddly heartwarming. Um, <laughs> now, there's one I'm, I'm going to struggle to remember the precise details. I tried looking for it in the book before our interview, but I'm afraid I couldn't find it. And it's about a British official who decides that somebody needs to pretend to be a different nationality to get into a disaster zone because the British aren't aren't welcome. Now, do you recall the story that I'm talking? Yeah, about? yeah, absolutely. Can you please, can you please um, in a nutshell, sum it up for us? Yes. Yeah, so I'm talking about the sort of in that one I'm talking about the immediate aftermath of the uh the access to the 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 crash site of MH17 Malaysia's Air 17 which has been shot down over over Ukraine obviously very pertinent and very poignant at the moment and uh you know probably shouldn't say much more than I said in the book but basically the the uh the suggestion was that the situation on the ground was incredibly hostile as we now know to be very true and and really you know the just incredibly delicate diplomacy going on with the international red cross at the heart of it trying to be very very neutral as they always strive to do and the suggestion was that any kind of american or british presence would be uh very poorly tolerated so we did have uh, boots on the ground from England, but they were they were dressed as Australians because the uh, the word on the chatter was that Australians would be well tolerated or certainly not shot by either side at that point. But it was an incredibly difficult mission. And I really like what you say there about the heartwarming nature of that. And of course, the point that I should make is that, you know, a lot of the book is very much not me taking any of those risks. I'm waiting here in the UK to advise on the repatriation and receiving of those bodies. Um, and, uh, you know, that was just something I wanted to get very, very carefully in the book is I am not, I am not doing, you know, I'm not taking the risks that you see some, some colleagues taking to facilitate the care of the, 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 the deceased, which is clearly very important to me. And I really get to draw out in the book. So MH17, I think really illustrates um, 
something that I, I tried to get a balance right. And I'm really pleased to hear you say it was heartwarming. I never wanted us to individually look inept. You know, there was a sort of danger that we would look like we were sort of not taking this seriously. But I think there's a I think there's a, a comfort to the public, actually, because there's a there's a reassurance that there's just very good people with good heart trying to make situations work and that's I think been the uplifting part of the book that people have really responded yes and to explain what those boots on the ground were doing after that plane crash they were recovering the remains of British citizens you see some people might say well you know they're dead leave leave the body parts there but you know and there are people in your field that know it's it's so important to the family that the the remains and the personal details are recovered and they're recovered as completely as possible for, um, you know, for, for grieving and, and burial and interment and for a sense of, of completion afterwards. And so the fact that people in the British government understood your field and your perspective and cared enough about the family of the deceased that they, they in a rather, because James Bond, this is not, you know, they, they sort of fumble in with, uh, with uh, fake Australian accents or whatever and Australian outfits to go in and to recover the remains. There was something that was, um, yeah, inept and clumsy, but really quite encouraging about it. And I, it's a detail that stood out for me because I think so many of us have been quite red-pilled through covid the sense that the government did focus on the numbers and and the modelling and the virus t- to the exclusion of all the harms that would be caused by lockdowns. And you can have a feeling, therefore, that they don't care. But there are a number of little stories in your book that really reveal a level of care of people in government. So I like I really liked that a lot. Another story I like a lot is the pigeons. Can you please tell me about your fascination and wariness for pigeons? Yeah, and, and thank you for saying what you just said. And I think it very much links back to, you know, what you said at the start of the book about wanting to write it, because, you know, although the, the descriptions that I give are deliberately graphic, I want people to understand what it takes to go and do this work, what it takes to care. Because if you, you know, if, as you say, the disaster or the event happens and people don't really know that for months and years afterwards, there's dedicated what I call bricolage, hidden odd jobs that try and do everything they can for the families. And in 9-11, um, I, you know, I was working again here in Britain on a contract for the Office of Chief Medical, Medical Examiner where I was sending mortuary staff and funeral directors over to support the operation. And the contract would come in in various stages. And the next stage of the contract in 2002 was to put in place um, uh, teams who would go and search the pigeons' nests and seagulls' nests around the, um, the the site of Ground Zero because the pigeons were removing tiny bones, so the phalanges in the fingers and the feet. And um, because of the promise made to families that everything would be done to return as much uh, as much as possible of their loved one, we're still at a stage where we have thousands and thousands of unidentified tiny pieces held in a in a, in a billion dollar facility in um, in in New York. Um, that they would do they would do everything they could, and one of those jobs was was to prevent uh, the pigeons losing essentially the last fragment of a loved one that could possibly be tested for dna not always um and that it but that's also a great example very 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 difficult example of what of what you're illustrating there about the quiet story or the the oral narrative because 
I came back from that work very, very affected by how much the scene matters to a community and to the bereaved families for, for recovery. But it also goes to something that you you pick on about, you know, being that woman in that space, because the meeting would all be about very, very high level strategic command and control. And then I would say, and I've done it quite, quite a few times now in major instance, have we got a hawk? Because we're going to need to stop the pigeons. And at that point, the room, you know, as I say in the book, I could divide it down into four portions. There were people who totally got it, you know, ex-military or funeral directors who knew what I was talking about. In the case of the July the 7th bombings, it was the very, very experienced senior identification manager, the detective that's responsible for returning every, every bit of body that they can to the loved one. And then there's other people in the room, you know, young civil servants who are on a six month fast track graduate program who just look utterly horrified. And then there's the person sort of who really wants you. They, they always, what Lucy gets accused of a lot, it's a favourite phrase, is Lucy, don't get in the weeds. And it's a strategic commander's reminder to you to pull yourself back out of the operational detail. But the operational detail is all. So I have a list of phrases that I get sort of insulted with. <laughs> so when you say, you know, did I, was I relatively zen by the time of the pandemic? It had been about, it got worse about 2015. So it had been about five, six years of Lucy get out of the weeds and the hawk was just too mundane. <laughs> so well, yeah, I, it's a really I, story. It is. I mean, it's just one of those things that you don't, until you've read your book, you don't know that the ultimate professional disaster and recovery team employ a falconer to, uh, to use a hawk to keep the pigeons away because the pigeons will steal fragments of bones. You know, that could be KFC bones. It yeah. could be the canteen bones. It could be human finger bones yep. to make their nests yeah. with. So it's just something you would never know. And uh, you, you and I are both uh, quite fascinated by death. And uh, I feel this is a conversation for another time. We'll have to delve into this another time. But it's this reminder of the circle of life, you know. Um, yes, we want to bring all of the human remains back for as complete an interment as possible. And it's really important for the, for the family of the deceased. But the fact is we do return to the earth one way or another yeah. it's a it's a grisly fascinating yet also heart expanding reminder of the circle of life yeah. you know some pigeons make use of the bones and then of course the other aspect of this is the animal rights activists who were enraged that um, a hawk was uh, scaring off the pigeons and went to the london mayor's office to complain and that feels as tiresomely relevant then as it does now because there's always somebody woke to get annoyed about good work <laughs> being done somewhere so there was a lot to that story i really liked thank it thank you thank you um, how do you think the book is going to affect your career as a disaster and recovery planner? Because you've um, you've opened a few closets and shaken a few skeletons about for people to see, haven't you? Yeah, I have. And I know I know, you know that I was worried about what that would do. You know, there's I think you've captured in your review very well. There's a delicacy. I, I think there's a reticence and it's not always because I don't want want trouble. Sometimes I don't want the trouble, but it was also a reticence uh, about hurting people. You know, I, I'm not a bereaved uh, family member uh, in, in, a, in a recent disaster. I, I didn't want to. I worked very carefully that the stories would already be in the public domain. I checked that, you know, they'd already been discussed with the families. I didn't want to be the harbinger of things that people hadn't heard. So there was a huge weight that went with the book. 
And the reception to it has been completely overwhelming. It's been beyond anything I could have dreamed of, really. And certainly things like the, the review and the podcast that I did with, with Rowan Williams has been, has been really, he's found things in the book that I could only really dream of could be extrapolated about really big questions, big questions about where society is, big questions about what society's worrying about, big questions about where our health service goes, where social care means in our community. Your review was just incredible. I think it, it, it really captured what I'd wanted to do. And as I said the other day in a, in a tweet, those last five lines about, about the, the place it holds. So I'm at peace. You know, people have noticed a difference in me. If you truly believe what we were just saying, you know, about life being fragile and a cycle, then you have to believe that. So life, you know, life really is that precious to me. I don't live any day thinking I'll live the next. And people say, oh, you say that, but, you know, you, you still have an ISA or you're trying to have a pension scheme. Yeah, of course, I'm not, I'm not completely hedonistic. But I'm also incredibly acutely aware that every day is, is a real privilege. And to know that the book exists has given me a religious, spiritual level of calm, but also quite naughtily, like, that's there now. Don't ever try and use as we saw in the Grenfell inquiry, the idea of a spaceship on the shard as so, you know, that an urban fire completely predicted and predictable should be ever seen as an aberration. Don't ever try and say that disaster plans and disaster planners don't exist. Don't ever say that there weren't people who cared. So I think you've got a sense over the last two years and you, you catch that very well in the review that there's a, there's a really burning kind of lava <laughs> inside me um I have been schooled to keep that very contained I have been told that my career would be better off if I could learn to keep the Liverpool girl inside you know I have been you know so I I am the <laughs> I am the beaten rescue puppy of, of civil contingencies planning but maybe she comes out now so maybe you know the next few I'm very interested where the where the next few years take me but I'm I'm really the biggest thing for me is I'm fiercely protective of my my sort of tribe of disaster planners. And, and what I would say to people is if you follow me on social media, you will see I'm constantly reevaluating. I school myself. I try and be very interested and gentle in people that I wildly perhaps disagree with. So I'm really interested, I think, at the moment about where where I, I take that learning um, and maybe maybe get a bit more challenging. Mm. Well, I I like the Liverpool girl. I think you should keep <laughs> letting her out. You bring and out the naughtiness good. in me, Dodds. Oh, I, stop oh it. well, most people don't know about Laura's naughty side, but I've definitely got one. Um, and I think that, I, you know, while it's good that your book has given you a feeling of calm, because it, yeah. it, it must be cathartic to write it yeah. all. Yeah. Like you say, it's important that it's there to hold people to account. A book is a thumbprint. It's a legacy. It's a legacy yeah. for yourself, but it's also a legacy that you leave for other people. So it's a permanent record of some, it's a permanent record of a very unique take on all the big disasters that everybody alive now will know and remember. It's Some of them are, are points in time where you, you know where you were on that day when it happened. For me, you know, it's 9-11, there's um, Boris Johnson's speech to the nation, yeah. you know, We've got 7-7. Seven, seven. Weirdly, Lucy, you seem to be at the scene of disasters as they're actually happening. Your career <laughs> appears to be destined. Yeah. And, um, and so, yes, it offers a very unique take on, on moments of, of horror and what, what yeah. happens after for people. Now, I'd like to just finish with one question. No, you, you may not want to answer this, but um, what disaster are you planning for now? What's next for us? 
Well, as I make very clear in the book, you know, there's this, there's the, the difference between the no notice and the ongoing chronic. And the life after pandemic history has taught us is incredibly, incredibly precarious. So the chronic disasters in the UK are coming at me from definitely the housing crisis and the cost of living crisis. Life will get a lot tougher. That's not a political point. It's a, it's a social one. I have to get my communities through that. I also think that um, pandemics in history have always shown great opportunity, sometimes for all sorts of things. We, we knew that pandemics would usher in periods of geopolitical conflict, which we've already seen. Uh, it also will, I think, increase the appetite and impetus for certain terror causes. So I'm I'm as busy as I have ever been. The other thing that that, that we also plan for is the Roaring Twenties. You know, people will want to have a lot of fun. I'm waiting for that. When's that coming? <laughs> I keep promising I, it you. I we were promised tenderness you know, after the pandemic, and I feel like we had a two-week window. Are, yeah, are we? we we are with and and if you're a disaster planner you're kind of smiling at the at the at the fun but it's got it's got a downside you know we're going to see a lot more excitable events that lead to other kinds of uh, so we we quite possibly for example see we'll see some kind of sexual health crisis over the next few years um we're seeing all kinds of interesting things I want to see communities come out of it better. Where do I get my smiles? It's always at the very, very most local level. So I'm doing an awful lot of work with local authorities at the moment to kind of get them through this winter and then have a lot of fun in 2023. I promise you there's a roaring 20s around the corner. Do you? Can't believe. I do. Uh, so one little insight <laughs> I'll give just before we wrap up is um, when you and I first spoke, and it was quite early in 2020, I was lucky to be introduced to you early. Um, and you said to me, but Laura, how would you feel if you knew that lockdowns and pandemic management was going to be going on for years? And I was stumped and horrified. And I think I said something like, but you can't mean it. And yeah, you, you said, did. well, there you go then, you know. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. if you and you were right. So if I you tell right. me that, that funds coming in 2023, I'm <laughs> taking it. I'm running with it. I'm keeping it. I'm get, your hair done. It. get your hair done. It's coming. I know. Yeah. And All it's, right, so then. It's, it's, it's there's good times ahead. I promise you. Marvellous. Well, um, Lucy, is anybody making a film of your book? I'm hoping that might be something. I, I've said I'd like Jason Momoa to play Tom, my husband, who plays a huge part <laughs> in it, but I haven't heard back. So no, I would, I'd love that. I mean, it's, it, as I say, it's done more than I could have hoped, but I would love to, I'd love to see. I'd love to see it do more just for the planners. The planners have had such a huge reaction to it. So um, a planning team I'd like to see made into a, a, a Holby City-esque experience. I, I see a film of your book looking something like The Big Shorts, Don't Look <laughs> Up and Fargo. And so I hope I hope that somebody wonderful ends up starring in the film of your book oh, at some point because it's got film much. option written all over it. But you just keep <laughs> being you and being the star you are. Thank you so much for joining thank me today. You. Professor Lucy Easthope, thank you. Thank you.